0: We're in New Testament survey. Uh, How many of you remember last week? Two people. Three people. Okay, it's a good... Four people. It's a good start. All right.
1: The rest of us are shy.
0: Everyone else is shy. That's what it is. Okay. Who remembers when is the intertestinal period? What time period are we talking about when we talk about the intertestinal period? 400
1: years.
0: 400 years of silence. It's right before... The birth of Christ right after the death of the last prophet, right? So between Malachi and Matthew. And it's 400 years of silence, which means God was not acting during that time, correct? Yeah. Yeah. That's he, speaking. <laughs> he wasn't speaking during that time, but he was certainly acting because there was a lot going on as we saw last week. He was laying the foundation to make it possible for the New Testament to be written. Today, we're gonna to look at some of the products of the, New Tes- of the intertestamental period. Some of the things that were developed in that time period that carry on into the New Testament. Things like the Samaritans. Who are they? And why is, why is there this antipathy and antagonism between the Samaritans and the Jews? Where did synagogues come from? What do they do at the synagogue? Who are the Sanhedrin? And what is the Septuagint? These are all the questions we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at the products of the Ad Intertestamental period. There are plenty of these that we could talk about, and we're not going to talk about all of them. So we'll have to cover some of the others, like Pharisees, as we get into the, the New Testament. All right. Any questions before we start? No? Let's start with the Samaritans. I need some people who would like to read some scripture. All right. Matthew ten, verse five. Who else? Joey. Luke nine fifty three. I saw some other hands. Uh, Luke ten thirty three. Anyone else? Percy. Uh, Luke seventeen sixteen. John four nine. I need one more. John eight. Greg. John eight forty eight. Am I John four nine? Yes, ma'am. All of these are passages that deal with the Samaritans in the New Testament. And I want you to just hear how the New Testament describes and talks about the Samaritans. And listen to what they say about the Samaritans. In Matthew 10, Jesus is going to send his disciples out to preach. And he tells them, go out to the Jews, but I want you to avoid this particular group of people. Go ahead. Luke, okay. uh, Matthew 10, 5.
1: Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the gentiles and do not enter any city of the samaritans
0: do not enter any city of the samaritans avoid the gentiles avoid the samaritans in luke 9 jesus is going to make his return back to jerusalem he's going to go back for passion week and to die and he sends some of his disciples ahead of him into samaria and tells them go find a place for me to stay tonight and prepare a place for me luke 953 we find out what happens when he gets there, who had Luke 9:53? But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Samaritans saw him, realize he's a Jew, realize he's not going to their temple, Mount Gerizim. He's going back to Jerusalem, so they say, no, we don't want you here. Luke 10 verse 33, this is the story of the Good Samaritan. A Levitical priest is walking down the road, sees someone in trouble, in need, and the Jewish mind would have said, This is the perfect opportunity for the Levite to prove he's such a good guy. And surely the Levitical priest is on his way to heaven. But the Levitical priest just keeps on walking. Luke uh, 10, verse 33. So it's the Samaritan who's right with God. And that Greek phrase actually begins with the word Samaritan. Like almost as if it's supposed to be shocking to them. It's a Samaritan. Of all people, a Samaritan is going to be right with God. Luke 17, Jesus heals ten lepers. Nine of them don't come back. One of them does. Luke 17, verse 16. Who has that one? Dipers. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him and he was a Samaritan. Why do you think they had to throw that in there? He was a Samaritan. John 4, well-known passage, "The woman at the well. Jesus has been walking all day, he's tired, he's worn out, he's at the well. He asked this woman to give him a drink. John 4, verse 9.: The Samaritan woman said to him. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The final phrase there, you can actually translate it, use not anything the same as Samaritans. I won't drink out of cups you've used. I won't use the same anything that you use. We have nothing in common with each other. And in fact, when the Jews wanted to insult Jesus, when they really wanted to try to you know, give him a shot in the ribs, they called him a Samaritan. John 8. Who has John 8? John eight
1: forty eight. Yeah. It says, the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon?
0: Yeah. You're a Samaritan and you have a demon why is there such antipathy between these two groups because if you read modern scholars they'll tell you that samaritans are just jews that intermarried with gentiles that doesn't seem to fit this jews had been intermarrying with gentiles for a while but there was never this kind of animosity between the two groups so who are these people why is there this animosity samaritan the word Samaria means a mountain of watching. A mountain of watching. And the term is used to describe several things. It's it's used to describe a mountain. It's used to describe a city. And it's used to describe a region. And then it's also used to describe the people in that group. So if you say Samaritan, you're talking about the people who come from that region or from that city. The mountain that it describes sits about 42 miles north of Jerusalem. And again, I will be making the slides available to you, so please don't kill your hands trying to write everything down. I will make them available to you. Here's, Jer- here's uh, Israel. I'm going to move to the other side. There's the Sea of Galilee. There's the Dead Sea. Jerusalem is right about here. And Samaria is right there. Let's zoom in. There's Jerusalem. There's Samaria. So that's about where we're talking. That's the mountain that we're referring to. The city was founded after the, after the division of the north and the south. Anybody remember where that happened in Scripture? When did Israel divide into two? After Solomon? Rehoboam, 1 Kings 12, you have the division of Israel. That's when the city was founded. It was founded by the king of the north, a guy named Omri, Omri decided he wanted a place to build his palace and make his capital city. And so he chose this this mountain to be the place of his palace. And because this is the place where his palace is, that was going to be the capital city of the northern kingdom. And he bought this from another guy, and he named the mountain after its previous owner. And you can actually read this in Scripture. It's in 1 Kings 16, 23, and 24 in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. He reigned six years at Tisra. He bought the hill Samaria from Shemar for two talents of silver, and he built on the hill and named the city which he built Samaria, after the name of Shemar, the owner of the hill. So here we find the beginnings of the city of Samaria. The king of the north decided he wanted his capital city to be on this hill. Mountain, And the city grew under the Omri dynasty. Omri and his sons made this city very prosperous and made it very large. And today, the influence of this city is still felt. You still see things that came from this time period. Especially when we talk about architecture. Things like Ashlar Masonry. I don't know a whole lot about masonry, but that actually comes from the Sumerian time period, from this region in this time period. These proto iolic capitals, I don't even know if I said that the right way, but we're talking about the tops. These come from this time period. It still has influence today. And the city became influential there too. It was so influential that the entire region around the city, was actually named Samaria after its northern, after its capital city. It became so influential, everybody named that region, just, that's Samaria. That's how much influence this little city had. And if you want to see that on the map, the blue here, all of this, can you guys see that over there? No, you can't. All of this is Samaria. Now, remember in the New Testament, the Jews wouldn't even walk through Samaria. They would go around. You really get a sense of their antipathy and hatred for the Samaritans. Because that's a long walk. Because to get around Samaria, if you're going from Jerusalem to Nazareth, you can't just go straight. You have to go this way and go all the way around. You've really got to dislike someone to go that long and walk that far just not to pass through their territory. That's a severe level of angst. Wouldn't you agree? Now, as, now Samaria eventually falls. Anybody remember when Samaria falls? When did the Assyrians come in? You're close. You're really good. That's good. Uh, 586 is for Jerusalem, that's good, and you're right, it's in the 700s. 722 BC, the Assyrians invade the northern capital, the northern country of Israel, and they besiege Samaria for three years. And in 722, the city falls to the Assyrian Empire. Everyone who was living in the city was either captured or killed. They were either taken into exile or they died. Everyone. 2 Kings 17, 5-6. 2 Kings 17, we're going to spend some time here. He says, Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, Hoshea would be the king of the north, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Haber and on the river of Gozan and the cities of the Medes. The Assyrian king comes in, he kills a whole bunch of people, everybody else, and he takes captive, and he carries them off and resettles them inside of his empire. And he leaves the land desolate and empty. There's no third option here. He didn't leave any of the inhabitants behind. But that brings us up a little bit of a problem. If the city is destroyed and its inhabitants are killed or deported then when you get to the New Testament, who are the Samaritans? They have to be imports, ports because the original occupants of the land are gone. And when you get, well, I, I'm going to get ahead of myself. Uh, 2 Kings 17, 23, until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all of his servants, uh, the prophets, so Israel was carried away into exile from their land to Assyria until this day. From the time of the exile to the time of the writing, the land had been vacant. Who are the Samaritans? Who are these people that are now in the land? And in fact, in Ezra 4, when the Jews finally start returning back, they get back to their land and they find people living there. Look how Ezra 4.1 describes the people living there. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel. The enemies? Are these Jews? They can't be. They're described as enemies. Who are they? Where did they come from, and why why is this antipathy there? 2 Kings again. 2 Kings 17, verse 24 gives us an answer. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and Sepharvaim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So they possessed Samaria and lived in its cities. Where did these people come from? The Assyrian king deported all the residents of, of Samaria and then he went to other conquered lands and grabbed people from there gentiles and moved them into samaria their imports and he resettled those people in the land of samaria so what happened after he settled them 2 kings 17 verse 25 at the beginning of their living there they did not fear the lord therefore the lord sent lions among them which killed some of them You have Gentiles, pagans, who practice really abominable practices. We'll look at some of them in in a minute. Living in God's promised land for his people. And they're practicing these false religions on the land, and God decides, I'm going to judge these people, and he sends lions to attack them. Now, I looked up the Hebrew word here. The word for lions, it means lions. Big, hungry cats came in and started eating these people well of course the people living there aren't really happy about this and they would like to find a way to stop the lions and they attribute these lines to the god of the land and they decide well we need to write back to the king and ask him to tell us how to stop this from happening how do we appease this god so they write back to the king and the king comes up with a plan Here's this plan 2 Kings 17:27. Then the king of Assyria commanded saying, "Take there one of the priests whom you carried away into exile and let him go and live there and let him teach them the custom of the god of the land." Okay, I've got all these priests that I captured from Jerusalem or from Samaria. Take one of these priests back with you and then have him teach you guys how to appease this god. And the residents were like, sounds like a plan to us. And so that's what they did. Kind of. Because in 2 Kings 17, verses 28 through 31, what you find out is that the people that were living in the land still maintained their previous religion. They didn't abandon their paganism and become Jewish. They maintained it. And if you read those verses, 28 through 31, you find them practicing these pagan rituals like passing their children through the fire and sacrificing them to these false gods. But that's not all they did. They still were concerned about appeasing the God of the land. So they also picked up Jewish practices and some of the religious ceremonies. They engage in syncretism They just added Yahweh to the pantheon of their gods, and they added some of the religious ceremonies to their religion. 2 Kings 17, verse 34, to this day they do according to the earlier customs. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law or the commandments which the Lord commanded the sons of Jacob, whom he named Israel. These are not Jews. The people living here are not half Jews. If you look at a lot of modern scholars, they'll tell you, well, these are just half Jews. These are Jews that came up from the south because the southern kingdom was still in existence at this time. They came up from the south and they intermarried with Gentiles. And that's why their animosity. But they didn't get that from scripture. That's their guess. Scripture says the people living in the land were Gentiles. These were pagans who merely adopted Jewish customs to try to appease the god of the land. Does that make sense? Everybody following me? Have have any of you heard this before? One or two, okay. This same story is mentioned again in Ezra chapter 4. In Ezra chapter 4, there is a letter being sent to the Persian king Artaxerxes. Remember, Artaxerxes was one of the Persian kings who allowed them to come back into the land. And it's written by the inhabitants of Samaria to the Persian king. And in Ezra 4, 9 and 10, we find out who these inhabitants are. We find out who's writing this letter. Here's, the, who, here's who's writing. Then wrote Rehum the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their colleagues. Who are the rest of their colleagues? the judges, the lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, the men of Eric, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, which the great and honorable Osnapper deported and settled in the city of Samaria and in the rest of the region beyond the river. The inhabitants of the land, when the Jews first returned, the inhabitants of the land were not half Jews. They were Gentiles who had been deported and even Ezra records, these are people from other nations who are living here. I yes? I have a question about
1: when Assyria uh, attacked and you know, took captive the, the Jews that were there in the region. Did mm-hmm. they not return them? Uh, was, there not a, was, was there not a return to, to, from those, those captive Jews when Assyria had taken them? S-
0: the Some of them probably returned that's, with Ezra. That's where I, that's
1: right. where I heard. At a later time, they mixed with the Gentiles that that the Assyrians brought in. Yeah.
0: My understanding of that is that is an assumption. Okay. That's just how someone's trying to piece together the the details. But when we look at this text, the people living in the land are not returned exiles. They're not. They are themselves exiles who were deported and sent there by the Assyrian king. So
1: there, there were no returned exiles?
0: Uh, not by this point some of the people that were returning with Ezra I would imagine were from the northern kingdom but he didn't get back into Israel or into the land and say oh look you guys were in exile too he got back and all the people there were described as enemies they're described as people from other nations like Babylon Um, I would say if anyone was there it was a very small minority of the population if any Uh-huh. Malgirism was where the northern tribes went and worshipped. They they took their worship up there when the southern stayed in mm-hmm. Jerusalem. So there was that still that Jewish yeah. portion that called called that mountain holy. Yeah. So even, uh, even 500, 700 years. Yeah, I think you can explain that by the reality that they sent the priest back yeah. to teach them their customs. And the priest comes back and tells them, "Okay, if you want a piece of God, there's our mountain. There's where our temple is. Here's what you got to do." Yeah, they claim talking. they claim that they are descendants of Eli, I believe. Um, they there is some claim where they are descendants of actual Jews, but the biblical text says these are Gentiles. They were deported. Alright, any other questions? Those are good questions. You guys are keeping me on my toes. I like it.
1: You reacted well. <laughs> oh,
0: good. good, good, good. So, who are these people? Who are the Samaritans by the time you get into the New Testament? The Samaritans are descendants of Gentiles who were exiled by the Assyrians. And they adopted Jewish customs and practices and religion, and they formed kind of a syncretist. Syncretistic religion, mixing Judaism and their religions from other places. That's who the Samaritans are. And if you understand that, you understand why there's some animosity with the Jews. (laughs) That was good, yeah. There was a sense of, we are the chosen people of God. And if you want to be a part of us, you need to embrace us and our traditions and our law and our God fully. You can't hold on to both. And here you have these Gentiles who are holding on to their pagan gods while at the same time claiming to be Jewish. This would have been completely offensive. Not only did they try to hold on to their old places, But they tried to change Jewish custom and Jewish tradition. In John 4, when the woman at the well is talking to Jesus, and she realizes he's more than just another guy, and she says, well, you must be a prophet. What was her question? What did she want to know from the prophet? Where should we worship? John 4, verse 20. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Notice the distinction she's making. We say we worship here. You guys say you worship there. Jewish worship was always centered in Jerusalem. And now you have this group of people trying to say, no, 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 no. It's actually over here. And they're changing Jewish custom. They're changing... Jewish tradition John 4 verse 21 Jesus said to her woman believe me an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father you worship what you do not know we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews do you hear the distinction between the two groups he's making He's not saying that these people are partial Jews. He's not even attributing them to any Jewish tradition. He's saying they are completely separate from the Jews. You people worship what you don't know. We know what we're worshiping. The Samaritans rejected things like Scripture. They rejected everything but the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected the prophets. They rejected the writings. They rejected all of it. They rejected Jerusalem-centered worship and the sacrifices in the temple. They rejected the idea of a resurrection. They didn't hold to the same traditions and practices as the Jews because they were Gentiles from somewhere else. Any questions, comments, concerns?
1: Okay. Let me ask you a question. Sure. (laughs) There is some judgment that happened to... The Jews, because they were going to the temple, but they were also worshiping Baal. Mm-hmm. Where does that fit into this? That was, was that disobedient Jews, or it's not referring to?
0: It depends on what time period you're referring to. So if you're talking about before the fall of Assyria, or before the fall of Samaria, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go through First and Second Kings, and the northern and southern kingdoms are both worshiping Baal and they're trying to do this very thing. They're trying to do the syncretism, and it brought judgment on them. Uh, The following in 722 was a judgment of God for worshiping other gods. When you see the Jews return, you don't ever see the Jews mixing their religion again. They've had a lot of problems since they returned, but it was never idolatry that they were accused of the exile taught them the lesson. They learned their lesson. Don't commit idolatry. And so, yeah, I would say that's how that fits in. Cool. Thank you. There is one other thing I do want to mention. Last week we talked about the Maccabean revolt. Remember, Antiochus IV came in, slaughtered a whole bunch of people, set up a, an image of Zeus, sacrificed a pig in the altar in the temple. Remember that? And the Jews decided to revolt under a guy named Mattathias Maccabees. And the Maccabees had a name called the Hasmoneans, and their descendants eventually became the rulers and the high priests in Israel. One of the high priests was a guy named John Hyrcanus. John Hyrcanus decided that he wanted to convert the Samaritans. This was in the Maccabean revolt. So you're talking about one, I think it's somewhere around 150, 160. And he goes to Samaria and he tells them, hey, guys, good news. You're now Jews and you're going to convert to our religion. And the people in Samaria were like, no, we're not. And when they didn't listen, he burned down their temple and destroyed it. When they refused. So when you get to the New Testament and you see this animosity with Jews, you can begin to understand why that animosity is there. The Samaritans, by the time of the New Testament, actually believe they're descendants of Jews. They're actually, they believe they are truly worshiping Yahweh. This is the tradition they had received from their forefathers. And now in their recent memory, they had Jews trying to get them to change their practices and destroying their temple. And now by the time you get into John 4, it's understandable why there's that animosity. Make sense? wow, it's 9.30, okay. The synagogue. These are actually remains of a synagogue in uh, Chorazin. Chorazin, in the 3rd century. So it doesn't take completely all the way back to the New Testament, but close enough. Um, synagogue comes from a Greek word. It means a place of assembly, a gathering of people, a congregation. When you look at the Greek... Translation of the Old Testament, Exodus 12, verse 3, actually uses this Greek word, speak to the congregation of Israel. Synagogue refers to a place of gathering, kind of like we have a church. We gather at the church. The synagogue was a place to gather and to worship. When Ezekiel was writing, it seems like he's writing from the dispersion, and he seems to indicate this idea of a synagogue, of a gathering started forming during the the dispersion, during the exile. Because we have times where we see them gathered together in one place. Um, Ezekiel 8, verse 1. It came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell on me there. They're in his house. The elders of Judah are with the prophet. They're meeting together. They're gathering together likely for the purpose of worship. Why would they do that? They would do that because they're in the dispersion. They're in Persia and other nations, and they don't have access to the temple anymore. They can't go to Jerusalem anymore and worship. So they need to find a way that they can worship. I just said that. They needed to have a way that they could hear the law and to be instructed on how to obey the law. They needed a way that they continue their their religion. And it's here in the dispersion that we first see the first indicators of a synagogue forming. Um, There's a great example of this in Nehemiah 8. You guys remember Nehemiah 8? They find the book of the law. Nehemiah 8, 2 and 3, then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning till midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand and all the people who were attentive to the book of the law. I'll just note. He said from the morning until midday. If Michael goes 10 minutes over this morning, we, we can forgive him, right? <laughs> <laughs> but notice, we gather everybody here, and we gather them so they can hear the reading of God's Word, but they didn't just read it. Nehemiah 8, verse 8, They read from the book of the law, from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. They read the Scriptures, and they explained the scriptures. This is expository preaching in the Old Testament. Read the text, explain the text. So they gathered while they were in captivity, and they gathered to read and to explain scripture, and these are the basic elements of synagogue worship. But we have no positive evidence in the Old Testament or in history to show that there were actual synagogues in the dispersion or in the exile. One scholar said this, The first undisputed evidence of a synagogue comes from Egypt in the 3rd century B.C. From the 1st century B.C. onwards, the evidence of synagogues is abundant. 3rd century B.C. That's right smack in the middle of the intertestamental period. That's the time period we're talking about. First century B.C., still in the intertestamental period. That's where we find the first evidence of synagogues actually being built and being used. Synagogues would appear where Jews had control, where Jews were in control of the municipal functions of government. And it provided a place for them to get instructed, to hear the law, to get application. And it was close. They no longer had to travel all the way down to Jerusalem to worship. They could worship right there next to home. It's kind of like the difference of, you know, you have a church right here in Bernie, rather than having traveled to Houston to worship. You can come and gather with the local body and worship together. Uh, The primary meeting was on the Sabbath, on Saturdays. We meet here on Sundays primarily, but we have meetings on other days. And from the evidence, it looks like they met on other days as well. Uh, The second and fifth day of the week, they would also meet. But their primary day was the Sabbath. What was synagogue worship like? What did they do in the synagogue? There were three parts to the worship. The first one is prayer. They would pray together they would read scripture and they would explain the scripture that was their worship service pray read and explain their services were centered on the reading of the law and they read the law in cycles kind of like you have a bible reading plan they had a law reading plan and they would read it on two years three years or three and a half years At some point in history, they added the prophets and the writings. We don't know when they added those, but at some point they started doing extra readings where they would read from the prophets and the writings, and they added them to those cycles. So that way when the Jew came in, while they may not have had a copy of the law for home, they would hear the entire law read, and they would be able to apply it and live it out. Well, that was a central feature of their worship, Their architecture featured the same idea. It's centered on the law. It's centered on the Ark. Um, Imagine this was a synagogue, and we'll say the entrance is that back window. The Ark would be placed in the front, on the wall furthest away from the entrance. And they would have the law in there, so as soon as you walked in, the first thing you would see in front of you is the ark where the law was kept. And there were seats next to the ark, and the seats didn't face the ark, they face the people. And so there would be rows where you could sit like this, and then there'd be chairs at the ark, and you face back towards the people. Anybody know what's, why those seats are relevant in the New Testament? Pharisees loved them. Pharisees loved them. Those seats that were next to the ark, the seats closest to the ark were the seats of honor. It's the seat where the Pharisees wanted to sit. Matthew 23, 6, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. Mark 12, the chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. This is where the Pharisees wanted to be. And this is where they would teach from. So when Jesus went into the synagogue to teach, he would read from the text, and then he would sit down in one of these chairs and then begin teaching from these seats. Um, You can also understand this when you look at uh, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. If the chief seats, the seats of honor, are closest to the ark, where did the tax collector sit? He sat way in the back, as far away. He was a back row Baptist. (laughs) And that's okay, right? Um, But that kind of gives you a sense of what we're talking about when they say the chief seats. We're talking about the seats closest to the ark. Um, There were some people who worked in the synagogue. There were primarily two positions that you could hold in the synagogue. One of them is called the ruler of the synagogue. This is the person that was responsible for maintaining order. He selected the readings for the day. He made sure that the life of the synagogue was running and functioning appropriately. Um, I haven't seen a whole lot on how much he does the teaching. From what I've read, they would allow a lot of people to get up and to teach or to at least read from the text. Anyone could officiate in the service under the direction of the ruler. Um, later in the medieval period, the synagogues were highly segregated, men and women, and women were not allowed to function or to do anything in there. The earliest evidence we have says the synagogues, they didn't do that. They all sat together and they participated together. Uh, Mark 5:22, speaking of the ruler, one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet. This is one of the rulers of the synagogue who was responsible for maintaining control over the synagogue. There is another guy who worked in the synagogue. He was an attendant. One of his jobs was to bring out the scrolls for the person who would be reading and he would bring the text out to them, hand it to the person who's gonna read it. They would read it, the person would hand the text back to him and he would take it back and put it back in the ark. He was also responsible for scourging, cat of nine tails, probably the least pleasant part of his job. Um, We'll come back to that in a minute, just file that away. Um, Luke 420, Jesus is in the synagogue, he's going to read from scripture. He reads it, and he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He finishes reading, he hands it to the attendant, the attendant puts it back on the ark, Jesus sits down on the chief seats, and he begins to teach. The synagogues were ruled by a ruling body. Yes, sir? I think that kind of, just what you
1: said before, when they would let anybody teach, that's why he was allowed to teach then as a young guy. Is yeah. That,
0: is that the point? Yeah. Yeah. So you have... Jesus coming in and teaching, and then in Acts you have Paul who just shows up in the synagogue, and it was his custom on the Sabbath to teach and to reason in the synagogues. Um, it made it possible for the gospel to get out. Um, there was a ruling body that ruled over all of the synagogues, and every city had one. Any guesses on what the name of this body was? Sanhedrin, man, you guys are good. The Sanhedrin. In larger towns, there was 23 members. In smaller towns, it was only seven. And then there was the great Sanhedrin. Where were they stationed? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Um, Every local body of the Sanhedrin had one specific ruler who was over that body, but we're not going to go into that. The Sanhedrin functioned as as a court, a local court. And they would resolve disputes between people, whether those were civil disputes or religious disputes. And they had a lot of authority. They could do quite a bit. Um, they had the power to scourge. Scourging is the cat of nine tails. Yes, sir. I'm glad you said
1: that. Is, is that is that where Jesus got scourged like three times before? Because he had to go through all of these ports.
0: Right. So the Sanhedrin, um, I think the Romans actually scourged him. Uh, Paul talks about this. The scourging of the Jews was 40 minus 1. They believed if you gave someone 40 lashes, they would die. So they gave them 39. The worst thing you could do was kill them without approval. So if you, they were ordered to be scourged and they died, you would follow next. So it was thirty-nine. it was 40 minus 1. And so Paul received 39 lashes three times. And it was the Sanhedrin who would order it. Um, they had the power to excommunicate. John 9:22, 22, the, the man who was healed. Remember, the Jews went to his parents and said, Is this your son? They said, Ask him. <laughs> and what were they afraid of? They were afraid of being put out and not being allowed to go into worship. And eventually he was put out and excommunicated. That was a decision made by the local Sanhedrin to put him out. They also had the power to put to death. Uh, this is why Jesus went through a whole bunch of different courts, because the Jews, the Sanhedrin, didn't have the power to kill under the Roman authority unless the Roman provincial governor approved it. They needed Pontius Pilate to say yes before they could kill Jesus. Otherwise, all they could do was scourge him, and then they'd have to set him free. But if they would have killed him without the permission of the governor, they would have been in a lot of trouble. Yeah, so Jesus was scourged once. Paul was scourged three times at three different times. So they gave him 39, and then they gave him 39 later, and then they gave him 39 later. So his back was scarred and mutilated by the time it was over. But those were orders given by the local Sanhedrin. All right, that's the Sanhedrin. Any questions on the Sanhedrin? Comments before we go on? We have one more section to go through. All right, Septuagint, I realized last night that I have this picture up here, and it's a good picture. This is a picture from a third century manuscript written by a guy named Eusebius. Eusebius was the church historian. This is actually a picture of John 16, 23 through 30. Um, At first, I was a little, I was like, wait a minute, I got the wrong picture. This is a picture of John The Septuagint is a translation of the Old Testament. This isn't the Old Testament. And then I realized this isn't a codex. A codex was an ancient form of a book. And originally what they would do is they would just cut the scroll into squares and then stack them and then bind them. And eventually they just got rid of the scroll and they just started making manuscripts out of papyrus and they just stack sheets of papyrus and bind them together. And this was bound with a copy of the Greek Old Testament. Which is why it comes up when you search for the Septuagint. Okay? Um, so here's the question. This is New Testament survey. Why in the world are we talking about the Greek translation of the Old Testament?
1: They're gonna quote from it, aren't they? What are
0: you saying? They're gonna quote from it. What but I thought the Jews spoke Hebrew we go that last week? <laughs> <laughs> amen brother <laughs> yes so this is their primary text when you go into the New Testament and you find them talking about scripture this is what they're referring to they're referring to the Greek translation Alexander the Great Hellenized the known world everybody was speaking Greek this translation was vital to them especially when they were dispersed and the people who didn't come back they were all speaking and reading greek they had no access to the hebrew text and even if they had the hebrew text they couldn't read it so a greek translation was very important to them so let's is
1: that, is that why sometimes when they quote something in the new testament you go look it up in the old it's not really word for word the same
0: right right yeah the translation we can look at the translation and say okay this actually matches with what the Greek says, the Greek text, rather than how we would translate it out of the Hebrew. Okay. Uh, J.N.D. Kelly, the church historian, said the Septuagint became the Bible of the Greek-speaking Jews of the Diaspora, and most scriptural quotations found in the New Testament are based upon it rather than Hebrew. And I think we just talked about that. So when did this translation occur? It began somewhere around 200 B.C., in a little city in Egypt called Alexandria. And who made the city of Alexandria? The Greeks? Alexander
1: the Great.
0: Alexander the Great. When he Hellenized and he went into Egypt, remember he became the Pharaoh? And he built the city of Alexandria. This is where this translation is said to start. And I said it, this is where it's said to start because we only have one source that tells us about it. It's called the letter of Aristius this is just a fragment. The letter of Aristius. I'll tell you who Aristius is in a moment, but you need to understand something. There are parts of this story that are believable, and then there are parts of the story that are not believable. Some of the story is legend, and I think you'll see that as I explain it. Um, this letter actually dates back to around 100 BC. Aristius was an official in the court of King Ptolemy Philadelphus. The Ptolemies ruled out of what country? Egypt. Egypt. So remember you had the Ptolemies in Egypt and you had the Seleucids in Syria, right? And Aristius is a court official. And he writes his letter to his brother, Philocrates. And basically he's going to tell his brother a story. He's going to tell his brother what's happening in the court of Philadelphus. What happened in the court of Philadelphus? Well, one thing happened is that the king's librarian, a guy named Demetrius, started whispering in the king's ear about the Jewish law and the Jewish scriptures. And he gets the king interested in Jewish scriptures. And the king says, well, you know, Maybe we ought to do a Greek translation. And Demetrius, the librarian, starts encouraging him to send delegates to Alexandria, to the Jewish high priest. Someone who can help us translate. And have him select men who can do this translation for us. This is Aristius writing to his brother about what's going on in the court. Um... And both the king and the high priest said, hey, you know what? This is a great idea. We like this. And the high priest agrees to start finding men who can conduct this translation. The high priest's name is Eliezer. He goes out and he finds men that he wants to do the translation, men that he believes are capable. He brings them in and he wines and dines them. This is not saying they had a party or they got drunk. He 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 fed them well. And then he began to test them. He began to test their knowledge to see if they were actually knowledgeable enough to do, to do this. And he tested them through a debate. This was just normal ways of testing. I think they ought to bring this back in school. If you really want to know if the kid knows the material, just start talking to them about it. You'll find out real quick how well they know it. But that's how they figured out if these guys knew what they were doing. They just debated with them, and those who passed the test were each given a copy of the Law of Moses. They were given a copy of the Law of Moses, the first five books. We'll see that in a minute. And then they were secluded to an island. And they were to complete their translation on the island. Now, some say they completed it individually. Seventy-two men were selected. They go onto this island, and they all go into their own little rooms, and they do the translation on their own. That's part of the legend here. Um, The legend says they finished their work in 72 days. Over time, this legend actually kind of grew and got out of control. It grew into saying, well, they completed the translations individually, and they never even spoke to one another. They all did their translations by themselves. And when they were finished, all the translations were completely and perfectly identical. There's some looks of skepticism in the room right now. It, yeah. If you know anything about translations, that never happens. This is why this is part of the legend. of. But this legend is what caused people to believe that the Septuagint was inspired. That it had divine guidance to it because of this legend. And it wasn't just crazy people who thought that. Philo, the Greek philosopher, believed the Septuagint was inspired. Josephus, the Jewish historian, the one we learn a lot of Jewish history from, he believed it was inspired. And it's from Josephus that we learn that they only translated, in Alexandria, they only translated the first five books. Josephus says, for he did not obtain all our writings at that time, but those who were sent to Alexandria as interpreters gave him only the books of the law. And from, our, from what we can tell, the people who translated those first five books tried to stick to the original text as much and as closely as possible. And they tried to give a very solid translation of those first five books. The other books, the rest of the books of the Old Testament, were translated later. They were translated over the next several centuries. And this is important to understand when we talk about the Septuagint, we're not talking about something like your NASB, where it's a translation done by one group of people at one time. We're talking about books that were translated by different groups of people in different time periods in different areas and to different degrees of accuracy. They weren't all the same. Uh, D Kelly again. The outlook of the Jewish communities outside Palestine tended to be much more elastic. While respecting the unique position of the Pentateuch, they treated the later books of the Old Testament with considerable freedom, making additions to some and drastically rewriting others. And they did not hesitate to add entirely new books to the permitted list. You have Jews outside of Palestine and they would translate books like the book of Daniel And they would add little portions into the book. Like Bell and the Dragon. Which is an apocryphal text that you'll find in your Catholic Bible. They added other books that were never considered to be scripture by the Jews. This is where the apocrypha comes from. It comes from this time period of prophetic silence. And it ends up in the canon of scripture for the early church because they accepted the septuagint that was their primary text and most of them had no way to go back to the hebrew text and so a lot of these books were accepted now i will note nowhere in the new testament do you have a quotation from an apocryphal text and nowhere in the new testament do new testament writers refer to apocryphal texts in the septuagint as being scripture So I think the early church understood what was scripture and what was not. What was added and what wasn't. Yes, sir? How with
1: what you're saying here, how is the how did the accuracy referring to the Bible, how was that other than God's intervention, that's the only way that it can be accurate, correct? Right. Because, I mean, they didn't have printing press back then right. to rewrite and if there, all these churches had uh, writings. How did all that writing get perfectly
0: done? Preserved? Yes. Or corrected. Yeah. So with the Greek Old Testament um The early church began uh, fairly early on to realize that a lot of these books were not appropriate and they started going back to the original Hebrew later on. Um, I don't think there's any evidence of divine preservation of the Septuagint. And even today, we don't go back to the Septuagint because it's a translation. It's just like if you had to choose between the Hebrew text or your NASB as being accurate, which one are you going to choose? The Hebrew text because this is a translation and that translation, every translation includes some level of interpretation. And a translation of a translation is just getting further and further and further. Right. It's like a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. You know, if you Xerox copy something, the more you make a copy of the copy, it gets just, just gets worse, right? So yes, well, it's
1: still written inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? Not the
0: Septuagint. The original. the original Hebrew text, yes. Not the Septuagint. And I you need to understand that because I've had people in my own family say, well, who took books out of the Bible? And my response to them was, no, no, no. Who put them in? (laughs) That's the real question, because they want to to narrow this down to you took it out. And no, no, no. Who put them in? We find out who put them in. They were put in in the Greek translation. Um, One more quote here. Speaking of the canon. It always included, though with varying degrees of recognition, the so-called Apocrypha, or deuterocanonical books. The reason for this is that the Old Testament, which passed in the first instance into the hands of Christians, was not the original Hebrew version, but the Greek translation known as the Septuagint. Um, He calls them the deuterocanonical books. When that first shows up around the time of Jerome, around 400, Jerome and Origen were the only two early church fathers that knew Greek and Hebrew. And Jerome said, These books are helpful, like 1 Maccabees. We quoted from 1 Maccabees last week. It's helpful historically. They recognized that these books could be helpful. And so they left them in the canon as part of a deuterocanon, canon, a secondary canon that is helpful for the edification of the church. Jerome took that position. Augustine took that position. And here's the real kicker. The Council of Trent in the 1500s in response to the Reformation took the same position. These are not canonical in the same sense that you know, the Gospel of John is canonical or in the same sense that Genesis is canonical. These are a secondary canon that are good for the edification of the church and not for the formation of doctrine. And the Council of Trent confirmed that? I mean, you affirmed that, I should say, not confirmed. Yeah, that's what the Council of Trent affirmed. And even Cardinal Cayetan, the guy who was Martin Luther's nemesis, arch enemy. his arch when he wrote a commentary, I think it was on Romans, you know what he said? He listed all the books that the Council of Trent affirmed as being canonical, the, the apocryphal books, and he said, we included these as a deuterocanon, as a secondary canon, not for the formation of doctrine, but for the edification of the church and their historical value. That's now, that's a little sidestep because we're on the New Testament, but I thought I'd give that to you because that's that's good information. All right. Any questions, comments, concerns? It contains the 66 books that you recognize, 39 of the Old Testament and 27 of the New, and then it adds, I think, seven additional books in the Old Testament and some smaller portions in Esther and Daniel and um, I think maybe Nehemiah. Um, they, so they have additional text in there. So if you flip through... And today they'll tell you it's all Scripture and it's all good for the formation of doctrine. And in fact, the doctrine of purgatory, the doctrine of prayers to the dead, all have a foundation in apocryphal literature. All right. But there's some writings in the apocrypha that are clearly uh, contrary to what is scriptural. So yes. I think mean, one of the main reasons is yeah. So next week, we're going to have a missionary here for the first hour, so we're not going to have this class next week. We're going to be having a missionary here to talk to us. The following week, we're going to talk about the issues of canonicity. How did we get the canon? How did the New Testament, how did we affirm the New Testament? And issues of textual criticism, and we'll get into some of the the issues regarding how did we get the canon? And then I think we have another missionary after that, and then we'll get into the book of Matthew and we'll actually start getting into the survey. Is this helpful? Yes, sir.
1: I think it's interesting that when Christ describes himself, picks the first and last letter of the Greek.
0: Yeah, Alpha and Omega, that's the first and the last. First and last letter. All right, anything else? All right, let me close in prayer, and uh, we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much. Uh, We thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that you have made it possible for us to be able to glean all of this information. We live uh, in a time period where we are indeed blessed that we have so much access to information, so much access to uh, the word of God and to the things that can help us understand your word. And we just ask that you would help us to use this information wisely, to not take it for granted, that we would live according to your word and that we would be good stewards and students of your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.